One of the hallmarks of the Reformation was the teaching of justification by faith. That does not mean that there is no fruit in our lives, no evidence of faith, no good works. It means that there is indeed, when there is a living faith, there is that fruit of good works. And that's the the lesson we learned this morning from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2 at verse 14. And James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has No works is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith that you give us. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of Christ. And thank you, Lord, for that living faith that is seen in a life of service, a a living faith that issues forth in the fruit of, of good work. So, Father, give us that kind of trust in you today, that faith that transforms and changes our lives. But we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was going to seminary back in the early 80s, there was a a periodical called the Leadership Journal. And I googled it today. It's no longer in print. And I'm not sure why, because it had some wonderful cartoons. And we needed some of that, you know, this heavy seminary classes, you know, and all the assignments that our teachers were just pouring on us day after day and We would trudge to class, you know, hoping we could make it through the morning. Well, we needed something, and so we often went to the Leadership Journal to find some interesting cartoons that just kind of lightened our day. Well, I graduated in 1983, so I missed this one because this was the summer of 1983. It was a cartoon that was called The Light Church. Not L-I-G-H-T, but L-I-T-E Church. Here's what it says. The Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, 
home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws, everything you wanted in a church and less. Now, we read that and we tend to maybe... I see some of you smiling, some of you chuckling at that. In one sense, I guess it's, it's kind of funny, but when you think about the fact that this is what some people are actually looking for in a church, less commitment, you know, that's my style. Now I don't want ten commandments, just give me eight, and I'll choose the ones I want. That, that is not the picture of a living faith, is it? There's something wrong with a person if that's what they're looking for in a church, well, what's the easiest route, the easiest way? Is that real living faith? Is that the kind of faith that, that James talks about here that, that really results in a changed life? Kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Well, James speaks about three kinds of faith, and I put in quotes the word faith because only one of them is really a saving faith. The first faith he talks about is what we could call a dead faith. A dead faith is a faith of the mind alone. There are many people in our culture today, in our country today, who would claim to believe in Jesus. And yet a significant portion of these people, I don't think they really understand what faith is all about. They may believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. They may have what, what theologians call an intellectual assent to the truth of Scripture. But according to James, their, their faith really isn't a saving faith because it hasn't changed their life. And James makes that clear that the proof of faith is found in good works. And if good works are absent, what would James say? That's a false claim. Faith without works, is dead. So a dead faith is a false claim. Several years ago, we were driving from Cloquet, where we lived, to Duluth to go out for lunch with this precious older couple in our church. That was the days before cell phones. I don't know if you can imagine that, young people, but there were no cell phones in those days. And so we were driving along, and I noticed this car passing us, and in the back window of the car it said, Help! I'm being kidnapped. Now, how do you respond to that? We thought, well, it's probably a joke. But if it's not a joke, we don't, we don't want to take it as a joke. And so when we got to the restaurant, I called 911. And I said, here's what happened. We were driving on the freeway. This car went. I took the license plate number, gave them the information. And I thought, well, I'll probably never hear what happened, but... In the paper the next day, here's what happened. There were college students driving from somewhere in southern Minnesota up to Duluth to look at the university there. And it was a joke. Well, the cops didn't take it as a joke because the article said that they were being charged with a report of a false crime. A false claim. James says that's what's true about those whose life has not changed. If there's no fruit of good works, to say that you believe in Jesus and your life has never changed, that's a false claim. A dead faith is a false claim. 
A dead faith isn't just a false claim, but James also says that a dead faith is good for nothing. It is useless. Notice how a dead faith is useless to others. Verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, You know, go in peace, be warmed and filled, you know, have a nice day, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, then James asks the question, What use is that? What's the obvious answer to that? Use. You claim to be a believer. Someone is in need and you don't help them. If it doesn't result in action, a dead faith is useless to others, he says. But it's also useless to the one who claims to have that faith. Verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? What's the answer to that question? Can that faith save him? And we might want to put that word faith in quotes. Can that faith save him? And the obvious answer to that is no. It's just a claim. It's just an intellectual thing. They might be able to say, well, yeah, I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. But if you've never embraced him, if you don't know him personally as your Savior, you've never received him, you're not walking in fellowship with him. That's a dead faith. One man has said that there are people on their way to hell with a catechism in one hand and a hymn book in the other. Pretty bold statement. But I think that's true. They have an intellectual assent to the truths of Scripture, but they have no living relationship with Jesus. And I think our churches are full of people like that. They come on Sunday, they listen to the message, they put in their time, they... Do God a favor. You know, I got up early, went to church, and you let it be worth something, but there's no real trust, no real change in their life. That's a dead faith. And that's the first kind of faith James describes. A second kind of faith that I struggle with a term for this, I'm going to call it a demonic faith. <laughs> because it's the faith of demons. It's a faith that affects the mind. There's an intellectual assent, and it also affects the emotions. The emotions. Look at verse 19. James says, You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. Now there's both intellectual assent and there's also emotion. The faith of demons. Now, when James says you believe that God is one, he's likely referring to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which was known as the Shema to the Jews. It was like a creed, a statement of faith that confessed every morning and evening as a reminder of who God is. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, that's correct theology, isn't it? There's only one God. There's not many gods in this world. That statement is very clearly theologically correct. But James goes on to show us that correct theology isn't enough to save a person because the demons have correct theology. They know who God is. They recognize who Jesus is. In fact, the demons have better theology than some preachers today. 
Now, isn't that a weird thing to say? The demons know who Jesus is. There's people in our pulpits today who don't know who Jesus is. They do. And the Gospels tell us what the demons believe. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, that's a demon, and he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That demon knew who Jesus was, right? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. I'd call that orthodox theology, orthodox teaching, right? That was correct theology. Will there be any demons in heaven? No. Same is true with those whose faith is like them. Just an intellectual assent to truth is not saving faith. And not only do the demons have correct theology, but they fear God. They shudder at the, the thought of it. Verse 19 of our text says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. What does it mean to shudder? Have you ever been so fearful that you were shuddering? Pretty strong word. And they shudder because they know their final destiny. They know that God is the ruler of all creation and that they will forever be doomed in hell. The word shudder denotes that of terror that makes one's hair stand on end. That's the picture of that word. You believe that God is one, James says, so do the demons. And they are emotionally stirred. They shudder at the thought of standing before this righteous, holy God who will judge them. Have you ever th shuddered at the thought of judgment? Shuddered at the thought that one day there will be a day of judgment? Ever been emotionally stirred by the preaching of God's Word, reminding you that without Jesus you're lost? You know, there are many people who have been emotionally stirred through the preaching of God's Word. Fearful of judgment. Know they stand before God as a lost sinner, but they still aren't saved. Still aren't saved. You want an example? Look at Felix in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 24, verses 24 and 25, it says, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Interesting. He sent for Paul. What do you got to say, Paul? But as Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. Okay, there's the emotional stirring. And what did he say to Paul? He said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. No record that he ever summoned Paul again. Frightened. Emotionally stirred. 
The message of God's word had struck a chord in the heart of Felix. But he went away. And no record that he ever came to faith in Christ. I've seen that happen in my ministry. I've seen where people have been emotionally stirred. Where the Spirit of God was dealing with them in terms of their salvation. They were convicted of their sin. Reminded of their need for a Savior, but they walked out the door. And basically said, maybe some other time. Maybe some other time. Is that you today? You agree with the truth of Scripture? You know that there is a judgment? You know that Jesus is the answer? Your, your, your emotions have been stirred, but you've never embraced Him? Never said, Jesus, I need You as my Savior. I receive You as Lord of my life. So you have a dead faith, just an intellectual assent. You have a demonic faith, an intellectual assent, coupled with your emotions being stirred. But then the third kind of faith, and this is the saving faith, the living faith, is what I would call a dynamic faith. Is a faith that affects the, the mind, yes. We, we agree with the truth of Scripture. Our emotions are stirred as we think of our need for a Savior. But our life has changed. Our will has been transformed. And it is seen in the fruit of good works. Martin Luther said, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do. But before the question rises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. Faithless man. Now, James gives us some examples in this passage of what we would call a, a dynamic faith. And they're quite a contrast because he mentions First of all, Abraham, and then Rahab. And there couldn't be probably a more contrasting examples than, than these two. First of all, you have, you have the faith of Abraham. When I read the text, did it kind of cause you to pause for a minute at verse 21? Because James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Did that cause you to pause and say, No. Huh. Wait, wait a minute here. Uh, does this uh, contradict what Paul says, that we are justified by faith alone and, and not by, by works? In verse 23, James quotes from Genesis, which was read this morning, Genesis chapter 15, to show that, that Abraham was justified by faith. Verse 23 says the, the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There's justification by faith. He believed God. He put his trust in the Lord and God gave to him the gift of righteousness. So you have verse 23 and you have verse 21 and just like, okay, how, how, do these, how do these fit together? Well, that quotation from verse 23, as I mentioned, comes from Genesis 15. 
just after Abraham was called by God. And then the offering of Isaac, which is mentioned earlier there in verse 21, that took place in Genesis chapter 22, seven chapters later. Chronologically, about 30 years elapsed between these two chapters, which tells us that Abraham had been a believer for a long time before offering Isaac on the altar. So we can say with certainty that salvation by faith came before the offering of Isaac on the altar, which was a fruit of that in his works. You see, faith in itself is something that that you and I cannot see. I cannot see into your heart today. I don't know if there's a living faith there. I don't know if Jesus is there. Not visible to, to us. The only way we can know if faith is real is by the fruit of it. The works of faith. And that's why James points to what Abraham did with Isaac. It is something we can see. And notice the emphasis on the word see. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. So how do we know that? What did Jesus say? By their fruit, you shall know them, right? So I can't see into your heart, but I can see the evidence of faith in your life if you have that living relationship with Jesus. It's kind of interesting. There are actually two Greek words here translated see that kind of help explain this. In verse 22, the word see, you see that faith was working with his works, emphasized more of, of looking at, at something. And then the word see in verse 24, the emphasis of that word is to perceive or to understand something. To perceive or understand something. So by seeing the fruit of good works in a believer's life, we perceive, we understand that it is an evidence of, of faith. I remember a story of a little girl who told her brother, she said, I asked Jesus into my heart. And his response was to, be, was to say, let me see. Let me see. Well, he was thinking, okay, there's your heart. You know, can I, can I see? Well, his question was maybe not the exact right question, but it really was, wasn't it? I asked Jesus into my heart. Well, let me see. Is there evidence of that? Is there fruit of that? Do good works follow? We are His workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 says, Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. What are the verses that precede that? By grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works that any should boast. Don't stop at verse 9. A lot of people stop at verse 9. What does verse 10 say? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's a fruit of faith. That's dynamic faith. That's not just an intellectual assent that I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. That's not just being stirred because I realize I need a Savior and I do nothing about it. 
A dynamic living faith is receiving Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. And it's seen. It's evident. People can't help but know that there's something different about you. That you know Jesus and has changed your life. Faith alone saves, Luther says. But the faith that saves is not alone. Not good. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. And we see that then in the life of Rahab. Could there be a more sharp contrast between Abraham and Rahab? Abraham was a well-respected father of the faith of the Israelites. Rahab was a prostitute from another country. And yet, they're the same, right? Because... They both put their trust in God's promise and it changed their life. The fruit of faith made it clear that they were believers in God. The oldest sister of Daniel Webster married a man by the name of John Colby. And he was said to be the most wicked man in the neighborhood. And word came to Webster of the change that had taken place in Colby's life and so he went to visit him. And on entering the house, he saw John Colby there, his Bible open. He had been reading the Word of God. And the first question that Colby asked Webster is if he was a Christian, and then suggested they both kneel together and pray. When the visit was done, Webster said to a friend, I would like to hear what the enemies of Christianity say of Colby's conversion. Here was a man as unlikely to become a believer as any I have ever met, yet see him. Notice that. See him. A penitent, trusting, humble believer. Nothing short of the grace of God. So it wasn't just an intellectual ascent. It wasn't just emotion stirring. But it was a change in the life. The fruit of faith. That's what a living faith is. And that's what... Luther meant, as he spoke of justification by faith, it is a living, active thing. It is seen in the way that we live. And I trust that's your testimony today, that Jesus has changed you. You know Him as your Savior. The fruit of that faith is evident in your life. Someone has asked the question, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Quite a question to ponder, huh? Well, if there's a living faith, there'd be plenty. Because that's what faith does. It changes our lives. Father, thank you for your word today. And thank you for the faith that you give that comes through your word. The faith that changes and transforms us. Faith without works is dead. Lord, do that work of faith in the lives of all who hear this message today. For the glory and the praise of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.